Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. In a few minutes, we'll get to my interview with Beverly Parenti, co-founder of The Last Mile, but first, the news. I did some things this week, uh, finally got writing again. Uh, I did my 69th recap of Orange is the New Black. Uh, I did a piece rebutting the incorrect argument that the First Step Act somehow makes Jeff Sessions more powerful. And I also wrote a fun piece responding to the criticisms of the movie Black Klansman by director Boots Riley, who is behind the amazing movie Sorry to Bother You. Uh, So obviously I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Hope you get a chance to check them out. Okay, let's get to this week's interview with Beverly Parenti. Beverly Parenti is a serial entrepreneur specializing in the advancement of innovative technologies. Along with her longtime business partner and husband, Chris Redlitz, she launched their nonprofit, The Last Mile, at San Quentin Prison in 2010. She's also currently the director of that nonprofit. Beverly's professional experience includes digital media, online payment solutions, e-commerce, financial services, advertising, tech incubators, and consumer products. That's pretty impressive. She transitioned into technology as a founding member of First Virtual Holdings, which was the first secure online payment system. Hello, Beverly. How are you doing? Hi, Josh. I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's by far my pleasure. Uh, I always like to get to know my guests a bit. Your online bio mentions a lot of specialties, but I love to hear origin stories. How did you become a serial entrepreneur specializing in digital media, online payments, and tech incubation? Huh. Well, it was uh, a long journey to get to the digital space. Um, but I was always in business for myself. I was a manufacturer's rep. I owned a chain of retail stores. And uh, I actually started my career in Manhattan, uh, then moved to Chicago, where I was in advertising, and then finally to Southern California, because it was my dream to live in that climate. And through a series of jobs, I finally wound up Uh, owning uh, several retail stores in a festival shopping center. It was a destination center called Seaport Village. And I was always tasked with doing the festival retail, whether it was for America's Cup, where I sold all of the online licensed products in a huge pavilion tent, or um, Super Bowl and, and a variety of arts festivals, Soviet arts festivals when it occurred in uh, San Diego, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, but I was always the person, the go-to person for these uh, special events. And the owner of the shopping center, Lee Stein, um, one day came into my one of my stores, California Dream End, and he said, do you have email? And I said, no, but I'm sure I can get it. <laughs> And that was uh, in the early 90s. And lo and behold, yes, I got email. And um, he was uh, with three technology dudes starting a company uh, called First Virtual Holdings. And they had this idea for a payment system that you could use online where you would never put your credit card online. You just use a virtual identifier or a virtual PIN. So these four guys um, asked me if I would like to help them start this company. And of course, I had no experience in anything to do with technology, but I was fascinated by the idea. And I, being a queen of retail and a facilitator and an entrepreneur, I was all in. So basically what we did was start this system in which you would never put your credit card online. You had a virtual pin that was tied to your email address, and you would be able to use that pin when you went shopping and then get an email to verify the purchase and the credit card was was there, was charged. Um, it was a much longer process to get it up and running, um, but that was the essence. And since at the time there weren't great merchants to shop online, we created our own e-commerce sites as well. Uh, that was in 94, 95. We had fabulous partners like GE Capital, Uh, First USA, uh, First Data, uh, who were investors and on our board. And everyone really believed in e-commerce being uh, the next frontier for technology and and online shopping was just getting started. 
1996, we actually had an IPO and things were just uh, exploding and expanding faster than one could believe. And um, ultimately, we were acquired and uh, was we actually had our patents acquired as well. If you if you look at it as you know PayPal in the early days, that's exactly what we were, and um, it was just an amazing experience. And you know, being on the forefront of technology, I was invited to a lot of conferences all around the world and met a number of people who um, to this day are still mentors and friends. But I decided it was time for me to move from Southern California to Northern California, where you know technology really is. Um, centered. And so I moved up to San Francisco and then got involved in a variety of companies as a consultant and employee and all the various um, verticals that you mentioned in the intro and um, was working at Ad Auction uh, as a consultant. The CEO of the company happens to be Chris Redlitz, who uh, was my business associate, business partner for many years, and today he's my husband and the co-founder of The Last Mile. Okay, so from what I've read, The Last Mile started in 2010 after your husband visited San Quentin. But from what I've also from what I've read, you were initially very reluctant. Can you share the story of how the program started and how you became convinced to get involved? Um, the Last Mile actually started in 2010. At that time, Chris and I were the co-founders of a technology accelerator in San San Francisco called Kick Labs, and we helped companies build their business strategies, um, their strategic plans, their brand partners, and funding. And we worked with uh, some really talented entrepreneurs who'd already been through some of the brand name incubators in the Valley. And we lived in Marin, so we passed San Quentin on our every day going there, but we had never been inside. And so one day a friend asked Chris if he would be willing to come inside San Quentin to speak to a group of men about business and entrepreneurship. And he accepted the invitation. I was not interested in going inside, but I was curious to hear what he had to say when he came home. He said he would only be there for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour. And um, I was home preparing dinner in Marin, beautiful view of the mountain, waiting and waiting and, you know, no Chris. Finally, about three hours later, he walks in the door and he's so excited. He couldn't wait to share with me this idea of starting a technology accelerator inside San Quentin because the men he met that night were so passionate about business and just their thirst for knowledge to find out how to start a company, how to write a business plan. In fact, some even handed him business plans. But he could see that look in his eyes, in their eyes, that we see in in the entrepreneurs we work with um, on the outside. So he said, Beverly, I have this great idea. We're going to start a technology inside San Quentin. And I looked at him. And I've supported a lot of his crazy ideas. <laughs> I call them CCIs, Chris's crazy ideas. And I've supported him through many, but this was just totally unacceptable. <laughs> um, why would I want to spend my time, my free time, which I had so little of anyway, helping those who have wronged society? Because I had the same impression of who it is who lives behind the prison walls as most people in society. So he was really um, very adamant about this, and he asked me to have an open mind and not to say no on the spot. So I did some research about the issues facing uh, society today and what the impact of incarceration has on, on our culture and society. And I found that you know many of the facts you might you may have already heard that. You know, we have 5% of the world's population in the United States, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And this was 2010. At the time in California, it was over $60,000 a year to house an inmate. And the worst part was that the recidivism rate or the rate in which they go back or return to prison after release within three years was over 60%. And compound that with the fact that after one year, 75% were unemployed. So from a, you know, a fiscal perspective, this made no sense. 
if we're spending that much money to keep people incarcerated and they're coming home and but they're going back, it's just this repetitive cycle of incarceration. So I thought if I could help reduce recidivism by just five percent over a you know ten year period, it would have a major impact on how much tax money we could save. Not only that, when you learn about the generational cycle of incarceration, you know, kids who grew up with incarcerated parents have such a more such a greater propensity to be incarcerated themselves. So my dream was, okay, if I'm going to go along with another one of Chris's crazy ideas, and I start a program that's going to help people have skills when they come back to society so they don't recidivate, and we could use that money and, and, and put it towards the education of children so that they would have a better chance and not go down that generational cycle. I thought, all right, I'm willing to listen because okay. <laughs> it does make sense. And so I went inside to uh, meet the men that he had spoke, some of the men he had spoken with that first night. And um, that was, I guess, what you'd call my aha moment. There was one person who is, his name is James Cavett, and he was part of the group I met that night, and he's a spoken word poet. And he performed a piece for us. And he said in that piece, I can no longer let 12 minutes of one day define who I am as a person. No longer let 12 minutes of one day define who I am as a person. And I thought, if he doesn't, then why should I? That's awesome. Thank you. It was. It's inspired me so much. And over the years, James Cavett continues to perform spoken word poetry pieces for us at all of our demo days and events that we have. And he was incarcerated at the age of 17. He served more than half his life in prison for this crime he committed as first time crime as a 17 year old boy. Um, and today he's a returned citizen and he's prospering and he's giving back and he's helping those who are incarcerated. And he's a great student and a great father. And it's, it's a beautiful story. So I try really hard to uh, highlight programs and people who are doing what I call 360 reentry programs. And those are people who are training people inside of prison and providing on-ramps for meaningful jobs outside of prison, hopefully with some innovation as well after release. What led you to the model that does both in-reach and support after release? Well, when we first started the program in 2010, it was strictly an entrepreneurship program. Chris and I went inside San Quentin twice a week and taught the program ourselves. We taught, you know, how to write a business plan. We Taught about We taught the men uh, about strategy, how to add a technology component, have a social cause. They wrote blog posts. They tweeted. They even answered questions on Quora. But since there's no internet access inside prison, they hand wrote their pieces. They were then approved by the administration and then taken outside and put online by volunteers. And when they returned to society, they all had skills to work within companies, but really launching their business ideas was tough because they didn't have a network of supporters. They didn't have a network of funders. And we thought it was better for them to get a job and work inside a company and develop those networks before they actually launch their businesses. So in 2014, we decided to add a training component that we knew would specifically define a job skill. And we like doing things that are hard. So we started a computer coding program inside San Quentin, teaching front-end software engineering. Remember, no internet access. So it was a great challenge. And fast forward to today where we have 50 returned citizens, some from the entrepreneurship program, others from the coding program. 100% are working or working and going to school. And I'm very proud to say that we have 0% recidivism. Congratulations. That's amazing. It's the first time in my life I've been happy with a zero. (laughs) All right. So how many faculty do you have now? Because you said it was just the two of you to start with. In each facility, we have at least one classroom facilitator. And on the outside, we have 12 employees who work in a variety of roles in programming, in on IT, in community management, in marketing, um, and uh, in also 
building out, out our product. So in order to teach uh, our program inside the facilities without connectivity, we've created a learning management platform that houses um, all of the assets, the lessons, the quizzes, and so forth that the students can access in the classroom. And uh, that requires uh, quite a team to keep that uh, up to date and to constantly add content and new assets that we believe would enhance the learning experience, as well as adding new tracks for study. Was it hard to get people to, I, I know you also have some like we'll have guests come in yes. to the class from what I could see. Was it hard to get the classroom facilitators or to get the guests to come in for the last mile? So we started when we started uh, the entrepreneurship program in 2010, we had uh, the students were reading books by a variety of authors and the authors gladly came inside and answered questions and spoke to the men uh, at San Quentin. And many say it's the most engaged audience they've ever met with. And in fact, they knew the, the content of the book, sometimes even better than the author could remember, um, because it was, you know, something they had published a couple of books ago. Um, but, you know, we had three KPIs uh, when we started the program. Would the population inside prison want to learn entrepreneurship or computer coding? Would the business community support us by providing guest lectures, and mentors to help us teach the program? And then finally, would they, willing to be, would they be willing to hire our graduates when they return home? Those were our three KPIs, and I would say there was a resounding yes to each of those questions or points. And today we have over 90 volunteers who come in on a recurring basis. Uh, we have guest speakers coming in. We even are able to do video conferencing now inside the facility. So wow. there is connectivity for the facilitator and for our learning management server, but the students do not have any access to the outside. Okay. One of my main goals is to provide information to other people who are trying to work to create better models. Uh, how did you get the leadership at San Quentin and at the state of California level to partner with The Last Mile? Well, it wasn't easy. Um, you can't just walk inside uh, prison and say, I'd like to start a program. <laughs> so we went up to Sacramento, and Chris really took the lead on a lot of this. Um, we've, we went together and we met with the Secretary um, of California Department of Corrections, CDCR. At the time, it was Matthew Kate. And we told them our ideas. Of course, we had tremendous credibility because we came from the tech community. We both had um, careers in working with technology companies and, you know, starting them ourselves. And we didn't ask for anything. We just asked for trust. And we treated this really just as we would another startup. Let's do a proof of concept, see if it works. As I mentioned, our three KPIs. And then we'll expand from there. <clears throat> so that's exactly what we did. And they, they, they took a flyer on us. And same thing with the warden and the administration at San Quentin. Um, and they saw that we were coming in twice a week and we were teaching the class and the behavior. You know, we, didn't, we don't accept people in our program who have any behavioral issues inside prison. So we look at their record. We see, we don't look at it, the administration does, I should say. So in order to get in the program, it's both aspirational and, you know, kind of difficult. Uh, they have to be infraction-free for a period of a minimum of 18 months before applying. They fill out an extensive application, including essay questions. They have a personal interview. And for the coding program, there's a logic test that they must take. And we don't really care so much about them getting the answer right as we like to see the methodology and the thinking in which they try to come up with the answer. And then we want to be sure that they can work together in a group just as uh, you would in any business environment. So, you know, to people who are trying to start a new program, I would say that, um, you know, coming up with a good plan um, and a safe, secure approach to how they would run a program, because there are so many rules and regulations that one must abide by when going inside an incarcerated setting. 
it's really, really important that you follow follow the rules and stay within all the boundaries that have been set. And then start, you know, with a proof of concept, start small and grow and get the trust of the community inside. And are there things you would have done differently in retrospect, like if you were starting again now? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I that I would have wanted to scale a little bit sooner. Um, however, I'm one, one of the reasons we started the the uh, coding program is because the entrepreneurship program was so high touch, as I mentioned several times already, that we came in and taught it ourselves, even though we had volunteers uh, and, and guest lecturers. And there was no way that we could scale a program like that. So that's why we added uh, really definable skills in a classroom setting using a learning learning management platform that we now have been able to scale to eight locations. And our goal is 50 and 5. We'll be in 10 locations by the end of this year. And, um, you know, my dream is to help uh, educate as many of those in incarcerated settings that want to learn these 21st century job skills, because at the end of the day, 95% of the people who are inside prisons today will be coming home. So we ask ourselves, who do we want? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Uh, which let's talk a little bit about the incubator really quickly. Uh, How do you get people who might never imagine that they could be business owners, especially in the technology space, some of whom have never even touched a lot of the modern technology uh, to both learn and to buy into the program? So I think that there are so many people who have preceded them who are great models. And when they, one of the things we've been really successful in doing is having our graduates return to prison at our demo days or other events And when they get on stage and start talking about who they are today and what their jobs are and and, and seeing them not as a man in blue, which is the, you know, uniform that they wear inside San Quentin, but seeing them in a suit and and, and business clothes and talking about their life, I think it gives so many people hope and they they identify with them and they say, I can do that. And the uh, demand to be in our program, as you can imagine, uh, is tremendous. Because the job skills, if they stick with it, the job skills that they will have when they return home, will, they will be able to get a good paying job to support themselves, their families, and to just start a new life. So what skills and training does someone graduate from the incubator with? Uh, so the incubator is a little bit different. <clears throat> that was the, the skills they learned. I think the number one skills, uh, number one skill um, is public speaking and presentation. Because they, you know, again, learn, you know, business plan writing and strategy and branding and what kind of partners you could identify with to help you build your business. But at the end of the day, they had to articulate that in front of a group of 350 invited guests at Demo Day. Um, And watching the students come of age as, you know, as speakers was really outstanding. Um, they learned how to write a tagline and come up with a name for a company. Um, and, and that was something I think they, you know, the branding sessions like stick with them. It's your own personal brand as well. And also being transparent about who you are and how you transformed yourself over the years of, of incarceration, I think was the greatest lesson of the entrepreneurship program. But something I will add is that we believe soft skills are tantamount to success, not just about the hard coding skills. So we do have soft skills workshops. Um, one of our board members, John Hamm, who's extraordinary, uh, teaches the Stephen Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People once a year to our students. And I'm excited to say that in January, we will be bringing back an entrepreneurship track and incorporate that in our learning management platform for students. And we're doing this in partnership with Stanford University. Awesome. Members. That's great. Yeah, we're uh, excited. Tina Seelig, who is a professor there, has been an uh, advocate and a champion and contributor to our program for many, many years. And we're excited to be bringing it back. Now, on the other end, you have the Code 7 
7,370 program uh, or 7370. I don't know how you <laughs> technically say it. Okay. 7370 is actually, you know, it's the standard industry code for, it used to be anyway when we first started. Oh, for okay. Uh, I know a lot of prisons, for instance, ones that I was at, who wouldn't even let prisoners have books about programming. How do you get, uh, how did you get the DOCs of the state to let you start teaching programming? Okay, so first of all, you said you were at many prisons. Can you explain? Uh, yeah, that? I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I was at three prisons in the state of Michigan. Uh, all of, yeah. Uh, Michigan. Okay. So you know firsthand how difficult it is to find opportunities for education that will benefit you when you return home. I mean, I really, um, so you have a, a genuine, uh, genuine perspective on this, and I really appreciate that. Um, you know, we were very fortunate to start a partnership with Prison Industries. It's Cal PIA, Prison Industry Authority, um, and they, <clears throat> along, they, they provided classroom space um, so that we could actually bring in computers. Again, not connected, but we brought in mini Mac Minis for the first time to have a, a Mac operating system, and set up a classroom and had books. <laughs> Imagine that books, and notepads, and you know pencils and guest speakers. Our initial um, content was in partnership with Hack Reactor, which is one of the uh, top, if not the top, uh, coding boot camps in the country. So we just wanted to do it as a test, just like everything else we did inside. Let's test it. Let's see if there is even a proficiency. Um, and some of the students who were in our first cohort had never yeah, even touched the keyboard. Not surprising. I know people who didn't even know, you know when they went in, it was still a rotary phone, much less a computer. So. <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. So we wanted to test all levels. Um, and some of our students have been incarcerated for over 20 years, others, you know, less than a decade. Um, so we started slowly. We started, you know, our first cohort, the first six months, uh, we, we just like basics. So HTML, CSS, um, and some JavaScript, but really just learning how to do, create a simple web page. And the cool thing about it is that, you know, if you've ever gone to a boot camp, you know, the final assignment is a capstone or during the, during the uh, course of the program, you develop a capstone project. So the capstone project taps into that entrepreneurial spirit, like what business would you develop? And then the coding skills gives them the ability to actually develop a landing page or a simple website for that yeah. business. So you asked me, though, how did I yeah, get the administration <laughs> to agree the tricky to it? part, I think, yeah. No, thank you. Um, and so, you know, because they trusted me and Chris, they trusted who we are. Uh, we operated within the confines of the rules and, and, and what was available, never going on the internet. You know, they really, they, uh, they trusted us. And so we took baby steps and we um, have continued to reinvent the way prison education is administered. And uh, we hope our dream basically is, or we, our goal, I should say, is to become the de facto education platform inside correctional facilities, whether it's for front-end software engineering or other certification programs. Um, That's an interesting. I'm going to jump a little bit off of what the order that we were in before. But uh, sure. so we have com kind of competing models. You just said that you want to be the go-to education program. And we have a lot of companies that are trying to have kind of a more of a predatory educational model. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how you might uh, challenge that model with the model that you're presenting? So, you know, there are, there's a time and place for a number of things. And I think we need to break down the system in there are prisons, there are state prisons, sure. there are federal prisons, and there are also jails. And a lot of people confuse prison and jail. And in the jails, the jails are like a revolving door, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. The jails are like revolving doors. 
uh, in the jails I've visited and the people I've spoken with, I mean, I've met people who've been in jail like 20 times for petty crimes and um, they just, they get released. They pay whatever they need to pay or not, which also puts them back in jail. Um, and they, I think there's a place for the, I think uh, we're talking yeah, about maybe some of the one of the examples learning. would be the so-called for, uh, free tablet model, which ends up, in my opinion, to be a lot of ways to add costs to a prisoner's stay. So, um, you know, there are a number of, it's unfortunate, there are a number of tablets available to uh, incarcerated men and women and juveniles. Um, and some are, some have great educational um, opportunities. Um, I've seen some that gamify so that if you take a course really structured on reentry, skills that you'll need for reentry, when you complete that, you get a certain amount of credit and then you can watch a video or play a game or um, send a text message and so forth. Um, that's one model. I'm I'm looking at a lot of them. I know that there's recently recently been some um, press about models that are usurping the families and inmates with very high costs for communication. Um, you know that's been a problem and an issue inside the system for such a long sure. time with pay the same phones, company does both a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah, making a collect call and what it what it costs per minute to connect. You know, the truth of the matter is connecting with your family and and friends, but specifically with your family when you're inside is so vitally important to know that there is a community of support out there that you're not coming home to avoid. You're coming home to, you know, hopefully open arms and people who are your champions. So you know, the, the connection is great. Uh, the the method in which people are having to connect and pay for it is not so great. But there are good models out there, I will say. There are good models. So I don't want to throw everyone under the bus sure. by any means. Um, and, you know, sure. I'm looking at prison, not jail. So inside prison, one has a t one has time. To devote, and you can make a choice. You can either devote your time to hanging around doing nothing, playing dominoes, or you know, getting fit. Maybe that's a little bit better, better um, solution. Or you can spend your time transforming yourself and studying. And I know a lot of men in our program have, have earned associates of arts degrees. They've gotten their GEDs. They've gone to anger management. They've you know certainly gotten over any issues they may have had when they were first incarcerated. And we really believe that um, rehabilitation yeah, should I've start often used the, 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 uh, the I basically always said that it should be like uh, what they do at a hospital when you, they bring you in. The first thing they should start planning for is how to get you home in the best shape possible. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we are... We so, uh, can you that. discuss your demo day model? I think that's really interesting uh, for both the uh, incubator and for the coding. Of course. So, for the um, entrepreneurship program, <clears throat> the students learned how to present their business ideas along with PowerPoint slides, which were created by uh, volunteers, but the students were all the art directors. And they learned how to present those on stage um, in a five-minute presentation and um, be able to do that in front of 350 in people, including invited guests from the business community, uh, venture capitalists, CEOs of companies, and some of their fellow inmates. Um, for some, it was the hardest thing they had to do for the entire six-month program of the last mile. Uh, we had one uh, one entrepreneur who got up on stage, and uh, he was so nervous. He said, you know, I think this would go a lot better if you all would turn around. <laughs> so they weren't facing him. Um, but that laugh made him relax, and, uh, you know, he, he did really well. And, you know, we have musical accompaniments on some of them, and entertainment and always end with a spoken word poetry piece by James Cabot. 
Today, our demo days are a bit different because we are showing projects that have been completed by the students um, and also by the web developers who work in our dev shop. Um, they are they receive their certificates of completion. And imagine this, Josh, I think you'll really appreciate this. After completing six months of the last mile in a California prison, you, you the men and women in our program receive seven weeks mm. milestone credit off their sentence. So it's two six-month cohorts. That's 14 weeks after studying for a year, 14 weeks Yeah, that's a sentence. pretty good incentive. Is that a good incentive? <laughs> yes. I would say that plus job skills where, you know, guys are, guys are coming home uh, from San Quentin. And That's amazing. Earning, some of them uh, are earning six figures. How do you get buy-in from the VCs? I've heard uh, from other folks that I've talked to uh, in your area that sometimes some, some of the hardest people to turn around are people in the, in the tech area. Um, well, you probably already know this, but Chris Redlitz, co-founder my co-founder and, and husband is a VC. Um, and so we have a lot of insight there. And, you know, it is really leading by example that is changing the way that people are looking at hiring formerly incarcerated. Number one is, as a software engineer, it's one area where one can be judged by the quality of their code or the pro quality of their work and not the stigma of their past. So at least that's a good job skill because after all, if you outsource, if you outsource your work to, you know, anywhere, sure. you don't really know who's working on your code. So why not onshore it to maybe even to San Quentin where we have a dev shop and inside our dev shop are graduates of the program who have interviewed for the job and go through the same technical interview and in-person interviews they would for any company on the outside. And once hired, they get to work as web developers and earn a market wage while they're still incarcerated. And we can do this because it's a public-private partnership with Cal PIA, the California Prison Industry Authority. And so because we're public-private, we actually perform work for outside companies. So we do a lot of website development, mobile app development, um, web apps for nonprofits, for some e-commerce, um, for just a variety of companies, um, our work is on our site, tlmworks.org. There's a portfolio there. And we have a lot of really amazing new uh, apps. And how, uh, so once, how, how does the the model for pay work in that case? I know, like, for instance, we have a, a group here called uh, the Prison Creative Arts Project. And when people uh, sell their art from inside, they actually get some money back. Uh, through their accounts, do you have, is that, how does your business model work in terms of the people who are producing inside? So the way the model works inside, this is a joint venture. It's a joint venture business. It might be a little bit different than an arts model. So they receive their, their paychecks uh, based on the hours worked. And the, the pay for any inmate is in California is divided into five buckets. They 20% goes to room and board, 20% sure. um, to their canteen account where, you know, you can buy foods and supplies and so forth. 20% uh, goes into a restitution fund. And if they don't have restitution as part of their sentencing, it is deposited into a general fund that is then donated to uh, either a nonprofit or families or of the choice of the organization. Uh, and then 20% can go to family support and 20% savings. So many of the guys have at least 40% going into a savings account. And if their canteen money is not, or the canteen funds are unspent, they can also get those when they walk out the gate. So we have, depending on the amount of time that the men work, um, they have some pretty substantial nest eggs to walk out the gate with rather than the $200 issued by the state. Uh, to jumpstart their life, which is, you know, really extraordinary. But one thing I did want to comment back on uh, when you asked me about the VCs and, you know, maybe some of the tech companies are hard to turn around. It is hard. 
it's hard to accept someone into your culture who is different, whether that's someone who's formerly incarcerated or someone just from you know somewhere else in the world who doesn't relate or speak you know your language. Um, it takes time and it takes champions. And if the champion is at the top of the of the organization or the top of the company, it does trickle down. There's such a ripple effect. And um, one one example is uh, Chris Schumacher, who works at Fandom, which is part of the Wikimedia family. Um, you know, he was offered an internship because the people who were mentors to the program had been coming inside to the people who work for the company for you know, and and got to know him over over a year time period, and they went back to management and said, here is someone coming home. He's highly talented. I mean, you look at his projects. He was a developer in the dev shop. And, you know, we'd like to offer him an internship in our company and just see how it works. And lo and behold, they did. And uh, within three months, he became a full-time employee. At an all-hands meeting, he stood up and told the whole company about who he is, totally transparent. And, you know, it really hit, hit a nerve. Because there are a lot of people who've made some mistakes in their lives who probably were pretty close to being where Chris was, but they had better opportunity than he did to, um, I won't say beat the system, but to get an alternative sentence, perhaps that's better. And today that company is opening up three more internships for more of our graduates. So the fact that we, you know, we, we filter and we offer uh, a, a holistic employee uh, to the tech companies, not just in California, but hopefully throughout the country, who have gone through the proper training, who understand the issues, who are highly trained and and so devoted to the companies that will hire them. That often, yeah, I think that's uh, I hear that a lot from the different people uh, doing the kind of things that you not the exact same kind of things that you're doing, but similar program. I mean, the idea of reentry is similar to your idea of reentry. Um, could you? Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about how you build on ramps once people are released? Well, we currently have a. Um, a reentry program will be announced shortly where we are providing educational opportunities on scholarship, uh, generously awarded by a foundation, and it's continued education in uh, coding boot camps, and then the ability to specialize in uh, something other than just a generalist in front-end software engineering. And companies are raising their hands and saying, if uh, if they pass the technical assessment, I'd like to try and, and give them an uh, internship opportunity. So it's, you know, today the opportunities for those who are formerly incarcerated, I think, are greater than ever before because there are so many examples, people like you and people in our communities who are, uh, you know, really showing the world that don't judge me by my past. Judge me by the contributions that I can make today. And, you know, there's just a, a open dialogue that I think uh, is just I've never seen before. Um, you know, I, I've been to the White House for a couple of meetings <clears throat> with several of your other guests. And, you know, fortunately, criminal justice reform has become a bipartisan issue. Yeah, I've been and, really uh, working hard with a lot of people uh, in in those same rooms about uh, the First Step Act, which... Uh, deals with a lot yes. of this recently. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that you had Jessica um, and people from Cut50 on the show just recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very aligned. In fact, Alex Goodich, who is part of... Yeah, a good friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, he's he was uh, a volunteer for the last mile when we first started. So he's come through the ranks with us over the eight years of our program. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's uh, so I guess another thing I read about is something about a freedom trail. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Okay, so what are you doing on October 13th? (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Probably about the same thing I'm usually doing. (laughs) Okay, so for the many years that the men are incarcerated at San Quentin, when they are on the yard, especially on the yard, they can look up and see Mount Tamalpais, or Mount Tam as we call it, and dream about what it might be like on the mountain. 
So periodically, when we have returned citizens in the Bay Area, we get a group of alumni, their families and friends, volunteers, and we hike up Mount Tam, not to the top, about mid-mountain, and it's not easy, and we are able to assemble and look back at the yard. That's amazing. It is a really moving experience. And, uh, we're planning our next one, as I said, I believe it's October 13th, and we should have uh, maybe as many as six returned citizens uh, being honored um, on that freedom show. We're really excited about it. I will, I'd like to add, though, that you know, we keep talking about San Quentin because it's our proof of concept, sure. and of course it's you know, really our home base. Uh, but we do have programs in two men's facilities in the desert in Blythe, California, which is about an hour and change from Palm Springs. And I was such an advocate for making sure we had equal representation in women's facilities. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that because one of the real focuses I've tried to have on this website is making sure that women's prisons get the same attention as men's prisons. And so could you tell me about the Indiana women's prison? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'll tell you that you and I are totally aligned with that mission. From day one, it was my goal to make sure that the women had equal opportunity, in, especially in the software engineering. So our first program opened for women in Folsom Women's Facility. Uh, we then opened in the California Institute, Institution for Women, which is in Chino, uh, Southern California. We now have two classrooms there. And our fourth classroom for women is in the Indianapolis Women's Facility. And it was actually Governor Eric Holcomb who contacted us and the DOC, Rob, head of the DOC, Rob Carter, and they asked us if we bring the last mile. That's amazing. I mean, that's, I mean, it's so often in criminal justice reform, unfortunately, we tend to think of reform as kind of a generic, which usually means for men's prisons. And it's just, I'm very, thanks so much for doing that part of the work too. But I'm not oh, done yet okay. because <laughs> a few more sure. things. Um, we will be opening uh, beginning of the year in uh, two more women's prisons. Uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, and we'll have more about that. Uh, we have another women's prison opening in uh, California, another men's in Pelican Bay. But we also opened in the first juvenile facility, and it's the uh, Ventura Youth Correctional Facility, obviously in Ventura. And in that classroom, it's a co-ed classroom. It's the first time there's ever been a co-ed classroom inside a correctional facility. Holy and uh, the correctional officers tell us it's the best behavior of any classroom because no one wants to, no one wants to have an infraction. If anyone has a behavioral infraction while they are in our program, they are excused from the program. They are, they have to. But imagine that. Not only do we have men and women, but we have young men and women also learning how to code. And uh, I'm so proud of that. And that's a model we will follow. So not just for women, but also for juveniles. Okay. Two last questions. The first one yes. is. Uh, so most of the prisons I'm familiar with around the country, obviously not the ones you're in, kind of have a model of teaching what I would call last economy skills instead of next economy skills. Yeah. Do you have any uh, advice for how to sell departments of corrections and state governments on next economy skills? If you were going to another one of these facilities somewhere in, say, in Michigan, what might you say to uh, how would you pitch the departments of correction uh, on next uh, skill well, soft skills plus next generation, next economy. So, skills. the most important thing, in our opinion, for someone coming home is to have a job. Yes, of course, they need housing, but if they have a job, a if they have the right skills to get a job, they have hope while they're still inside, and then they can come home and support themselves and their families and give back to their communities. So, it's really important to teach relevant job skills. And those may be different in Michigan than they are in Oklahoma or Indiana or California, for that matter. So, Well, hold on. I think we could both agree probably janitorial, food service, and uh, other skills like that, while still could get you a job, are probably not – oh, and manufacturing are probably not the areas – 
that have the highest, the, the most potential for growth right Absolutely. now. Absolutely agree, with, agree that? with that. However, every janitorial, manufacturing, and food service companies probably need someone in tech. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, absolutely. I'd say you know, service businesses may work for um, lesser. They work for lesser educated people because it gives them an opportunity to get out in the workplace. But how much growth potential is there? And you know, it's not the future. So we believe in providing the best educational opportunities, immersive opportunities when they have the time to learn. Because once they come home, there are so many other decisions and so many other distractions and so many other obligations. Yeah, and I think there's a, you know, I don't want to say that any of those things are without promise because I've done an expo- uh, an episode about Brandon Krastowski's model uh, that was part of the documentary Knife Skills. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that was high-end cooking and really has provided a lot of people with a better opportunity. But in my experience we were being taught or all being forced into when I was in prison, kind of extremely low level, not uh, with no view of a better future uh, employment opportunities. So uh, I, I really appreciate what you all are doing. So here's my last question. Uh, and I ask every single person that's on the podcast, this uh, is there anything else I haven't covered that you would like to talk about? Hmm. <laughs> Just to put you on the spot. <laughs> You know, one of the things, first of all, I want to thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing to uh, share the voices of so many people and so many lessons in how, as a society, we help those who deserve a second chance. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is I have learned so much through this experience, and it has been, I've watched people coming inside be as transformed as guests and mentors as the men and women inside each of the correctional facilities. And I think we as a society need to pause and look at the problems that we have and think about how, whether it's large or small, but how we can all contribute um, to spread the love and to help each other. I think there's never been a time that has been more important for us to show the world that the citizens of our country are united to help support ourselves and the world because there is so much alienation right really hurts. And I've learned to look at people as individuals and not judge. And I think that's also a lesson we all need to learn. Well, that's a great place for us to end. I want to thank you so much. I can't tell you how excited I was to talk to you because I do a lot of research all the time. Uh, trying to find innovative uh, re-entry and uh, training models. And yours is one of my all-time favorites by far. Every time I read an article about you, uh, your, what you all are doing, it just makes me light up like a Christmas tree. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope you will come and visit us, whether it's in maybe in Michigan sometime or uh, we never know or uh, Indiana, but um, you're more than welcome. And again, that Freedom Trail. Oh, yeah. I would love to do it. Hopefully uh, I get to the place where I can uh, just visit whenever I want to. But All right. Well, yep. it was really a pleasure, and I look forward to following you uh, on Twitter, on social media, and remaining in touch. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Now my take. We could make this entire prison enterprise so much more sensical if we just did what folks like Beverly Parenti with The Last Mile and Brandon Krastowski with Edmunds are doing to give incarcerated people access to an elevated version of traditional work or access to next economy skill training through programs in prison. The model is actually fairly simple. Start training people in soft and job skills while they are incarcerated and build an off-ramp to meaningful employment as they return to society. As I've said time and time again, this is why I support a model where prisons only contract unless absolutely necessary with companies that provide training in prison and hire people when they leave prison. This kind of model is necessary to ensure that people have hope and opportunity when they leave prison.
And this model is simple, but also ultra successful. So successful that the last mile boasts an almost impossible 0% recidivism rate. And Brandon boasts a 3% recidivism rate. And both can claim incredibly high employment rates for their graduates. Despite that, the overwhelming majority of states and state prisons across the United States still follow the same failed model of quote-unquote training folks to clean bathrooms, wax floors, prepare institutional food, or make products for companies who don't even hire people who are formerly incarcerated when they leave prison. In other words, these companies will 100% pay a prison to make a cheap labor force available to them, but they won't hire when you come out. And that makes no sense. We're investing in failure. We're helping people become profitable at the expense of our own societal best interests. We need to change this model. And don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with doing janitorial work. But the idea that you can take, for instance, in Michigan, you know, 39, 49,000 people and prepare them all for the same job, or that those jobs will provide a sustainable living for all of them is insane. And in addition, even if that were the case, they don't usually provide on-ramps to employment when they leave prison. You have to do both because there is massive employment discrimination in society against people who are formerly incarcerated. You have to do both. Why? I will ask this question again and again until things change. Why do legislators allow prisons to continue to use failed models? And they are failed models. Recidivism is high. Unemployment among returning citizens is high. And as we recently found out, formerly incarcerated folks are 10 times more likely than the general public to be homeless. As a society, we are incarcerating far too many people and insisting that they return to society in every possible way in worse shape than when they arrived in prison. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Prison should treat inmates like administrators in a hospital. They should start planning for a successful re-entry into society the minute they arrive on the prison campus. This is all so infuriating. We have chambers of commerce and legislators all over a post-immigration America trying to dial back the social safety net in order to try to force returning citizens into jobs that don't offer a living wage or benefits. In other words, in a tight job economy, they want us all to take dead-end jobs and jobs that offer no hope. But that's where the problem started in the first place. We have to provide hope. People coming out have to believe that there can be a better life for them. In order for things to change, we have to change how we approach returning citizens and employment. A more cynical person could infer that society wants our prisons to have a revolving door, despite the societal costs and the costs in criminal behavior. But I tend to take the same perspective as David Simon did in his excellent television show, The Wire. Bureaucratic inertia builds up around micro-economies. In other words, people come to believe that maintaining the status quo is imperative to their job and to their own future. So when we talk about systems of incarceration, Despite evidence that the systems are ineffective, unfair, or even brutal, what we end up with is correctional officers' unions fighting against reform, towns who have come to depend on local prisons to fight against reform. Just take a look at the backlash and anger that has been mounting uh, in the comment sections on the stories about the recent closing of the the prison in Ojibwe, Michigan. People become so invested in the failed system that they fight for it to the death. Police unions fight against reforms. Just look at the backlash by the Department of Justice and by the sheriff's uh, uh, organizations against the Federal First Step Act. Prosecutors fight against reforms and often conspire against reforms. They don't want the system to work as it was designed to work. What they want is to maximize convictions at almost any cost, even the cost of justice. So reform is not easy, not because it isn't necessary, but because many of the people that we have charged with the most important jobs and the people that we trust the most to have our self-interest at heart 
these people have a hard time seeing their own place in a system that functions to serve the ends of reform. And that means that we have to find different ways to talk to them. And some people have found ways to talk to them. Some people have broken through. And they have gotten all of those microeconomies of the prison industry to get behind real and meaningful change. We need to learn as much as we can from their successes and from how they did what they did. We need to learn to have the same conversations they had to somehow turn enemies into allies. The stakes are high, but the evidence for reform is clear. We document it every week on this podcast. We owe a great debt to the people showing us the way. I want to thank Beverly Parenti and her entire team at The Last Mile for doing such incredible work, truly innovative and impactful work, work that can change not only society, but inmates' lives and their families' lives. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me. A special note of thanks this week because we had some technical problems with the interview and he had to do yeoman's work to make it work out. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Not Nation podcast. See you next time.